Attention all authors. Page Publishing is looking for authors. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Apple iTunes and other outlets. They handle all aspects of the publishing process for you. Printing, cover art, publicity, copyright, and editing. Call 800-292-8137 now for your free author submission kit. That's 800-292-8137 for your free author submission kit. Again, that's 800-292-8137. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Alicia always asks me, like, what are you going to talk about? And I said, we just talk. It's going to be great. It's going to be fine. We're going to talk about the book. We'll probably talk about other stuff. It's going to be great. Today, we are joined by the incredibly talented author, Matthew Dix. Matthew is a teacher, an author of three previous novels. You have to read all three of them. And the co-founder and creative director of Speak Up, a Connecticut-based storytelling organization, Matthew is also a 35-time Moth Story Slam champion, which must be some sort of record, a six-time Grand Slam champion, and a 2017 Nutmeg Award finalist. He is no stranger to podcasts and has appeared as a regular guest on several Slate podcasts, as well as being the creator and co-host of Boy vs. Girl, podcast about gender and gender stereotypes. And I think he has a new podcast on storytelling. We'll talk to him about that. Today, Matthew joins us to talk about his fourth book, Storyworthy, a guide on how to engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. As writers, we know the importance of telling a story. But in his new book, Matthew Dix teaches us that everyone not just authors, have a story to tell. Whether it be in school, on a date, or at a job interview, telling stories helps us be honest with ourselves as well as make a deeper connection with others. Matthew is not only a great author, but a great teacher, and his book serves numerous tips and tools to help us all become storytellers. I loved a quote that he had in the book. It's an ancient proverb And the proverb is, tell me the facts and I'll learn. Tell me the truth and I'll believe. But tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. And Matthew can teach us how to tell that story. Matthew, welcome to Just the Right Book. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Was it too long? Was it not a good story? I fear I won't live up to it. (laughs) So speaking of that, one of the tips that we'll we'll get to that you uh, bring out in the book is when you're starting to tell a story, don't introduce it by saying you'll love this or this is hilarious. It's why? The worst. Why not? Yeah, it's the worst thing to do. Well, I mean, part of humor is surprise. Actually, all of humor is surprise. You make people laugh by saying something that surprises them intellectually or emotionally. So if you prep by saying this is hilarious, you've already eliminated the possibility of surprise. 
and you've set a bar for yourself. Like, hilarious is a very high bar. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy if I'm amusing most days. And so to go in and say, you're not going to believe this or this is hilarious is just a really terrible way to start off your story. But but people do it all the time. They do it all the time. And it just grates on me. It's the same in – like I compare stories to movies all the time. When we tell a story, what we're really doing is creating a movie in the mind's eye of the audience. And so no movie starts with someone coming out on stage and saying, ladies and gentlemen, this movie is going to be hilarious, <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. So so I just say launch into the story in the same way that you start a movie and it launches in. And – well, that brings to mind bunches of things in the book. But let's start with one thing that I loved – thinking about. And you, this is early in the book, and you talk about creating homework for life. So describe what that is and how that's helpful if you want to tell stories. Well, I'll say that it's helpful even if you don't want to tell stories. I agree. So regardless of whether you plan on telling a story or not, and you should because in your everyday life, you're telling stories all the time. It's the idea that our life is full of stories And so often we either don't see them because we haven't developed that lens to recognize when a moment is happening or even worse, we see it, we take note of it, and then we move on in our lives and we leave a moment that is precious behind to be forgotten, which I think happens all the time. So in a desperation to stay on stage and to come up with new content, I gave myself a homework assignment. I'm an elementary school teacher, so this is what I do to myself. And so I said at the end of every day... I'm going to sit down and I'm going to ask myself, what is the most story-worthy moment from the day? Even if that moment is truly not story-worthy, like not even worth telling my wife about, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask myself what today was different than any other day. And then I write it down. But I don't write down the whole story because that's a journaler and those are like very precious people that exist on a different plane than most of us. Right. So I use Excel, the the program, the spreadsheet program. I just – the first column has the date and then I only allow myself to stretch the second column to the end of the computer and write in that column probably two or three sentences that capture the moment. Just enough so that I can get back to it if I need to, to tell a story. And most important, so I record it. And what happened over time, my expectation was I'd find a story – Maybe once a month, that might be worth the stage. But over Mm -hmm. time, because I was asking myself this question and forcing myself to examine my life, I just discovered that your whole life is full of stories, you know, and maybe it's one minute anecdotes, which are really valuable. You know, answering a question with a one minute anecdote is so much better than than just an answer. Or it could be something like a five or a 10 minute story. And they happen all the time. And we just we either don't see them or we don't record them. So regardless of whether you want to tell stories or not. It changes the way you look at your life. You see that there's richness in your life that you didn't recognize before, and suddenly you find more meaning than you ever thought was there. Well, and that I, – I, I don't aspire to be a storyteller, but what I was fascinated about is since I, with age, subscribe to the notion that happiness is about an array of moments that are happy, not, you know, nobody lives in fantasy land where every day is like a tra-la-la. And I think this notion of homework for life gives you the moment, you know, it's like a productive way of the gratituding that people say that you should be doing by really crystallizing it not into I'm grateful my car ran today, but what was it the moment that sort of might even have an element of transformation for you? 
Yeah, or realization, one or the other. You know, the gratitude journals that people do, I think they're lovely, but the problem is they don't recognize the range of human emotion. Exactly. You know, so I went to the I went to the pet store yesterday and my dog passed away 3 months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um it was the first time I went to the pet store since my dog passed away. I walked into the store, I looked at the bones in the front and I just started to cry. Mm. And why would you go to the pet store? My wife asked me to pick up cat food. And so I had to go pick up the cat food. I didn't think anything of it until I walked into the store, looked at the bones and started to cry. And you know, I hadn't realized how much I was still living with this dog's death. You know, she was with me for 16 years. Yeah. And that doesn't make a gratitude journal. But that is a moment that I want to hold on to. Yeah. It's a painful moment, but it's also an important moment for me. It's a realization that three months is not enough to get over the loss of a friend that is, mm. you know, living in your heart to the degree that my dog lived in my heart. And it made me appreciate the relationship I had with that dog a little more and made me understand, like, I'm not going into a pet store for a very long time and she's going to have to get the damn cat food. Yeah. But that doesn't make a gratitude journal. So here's the way a homework for life thing can sort of turn on you. Last year, my roommate from college, who's still one of my best friends, I was trying to remember the exact day of what would have been our 50th anniversary of meeting. We said, well, we could call them and see, when did you move into the dorm in 1967? And so we were talking about that. And I remembered I kept a Peanuts wall calendar. And I used to write in it every day. And so I thought, I wonder if it's in storage. Sure enough, I go to storage. I find the Peanuts calendar. I figure out the date I met Marilyn. So then obviously I start reading the journal. The calendar, I also realize it's Earlier that year is when I met Kevin, who's my husband now. So I could go back. And I had this vision of what things were like then. Right. And then you read the calendar. Yeah. I was not so clever. I was not, <laughs> I was not observing the important things in life. So it can turn on you a little bit if you're not if you're not that thoughtful. Right. But if you had been asking yourself the question at the time, what is my exactly. most story-worthy moment, that calendar would be even more valuable to you. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Even my 18-year-old self. Right. Absolutely. So the uh, the other thing that I thought about reading this book, now you're obviously a storyteller that gets, you know, tells stories all over, teaches people how to tell stories. But what it made me think about was small s storytelling and meaning you're at a dinner party, you're having a conversation with each other. Have you had people sign up for your storytelling classes and want to just learn how to be a better conversationalist? Yeah, the vast majority of people who I teach are looking for that small s story that I am a grandparent and I can't get my grandchildren to listen to me or I am a teacher and I'd like my students to listen to me more often or I have a brother-in-law who is always the star of every Thanksgiving Day dinner, and for once in my life, I want people to listen to me. Mm. I had a woman once take my workshop because she worked in a big insurance company, and she said, at lunch, I never know what to say, so I don't have work friends. She said, I sit with people, but nobody knows who I am, so I just want to learn how to tell some entertaining stories so I can talk to people at lunch. And she said, I'm never going to take the stage. I'm never going to tell a story. I just right. want to do 
that. She ended up doing it, and then I got her on a stage, and she told a story. And then she started telling stories for other organizations, and now she sort of lives on stage quite a bit telling stories. But it began with the idea of, I just want to make some friends. And storytelling for dating is very popular now. People take my workshops because they get the first date, but whatever they say on the first date causes them to not get the next date. And so I teach them how to tell more effective stories and mostly choosing the right stories to tell. When I read this, I was thinking about people I know who are bad storytellers. Yeah. But I also – so I, to me, teaching bad storytellers how to be good storytellers, what would be the biggest obstacle to them becoming good storytellers? I guess editing tends to be the hardest thing for people. It's really difficult to make certain people understand that we don't need to hear everything. Yeah. Uh, that if we decide what we want to say, which is really to say, where do we want to land this story? What do we want to finally say at the end? And then the choices that we make as we go along in the story serve the end of that story only. So that tangents and things that are amusing but don't really pertain to the story. You know, people often think, I got a laugh, so that worked. And I say, it got a laugh, but it didn't actually make a point. So, like, I can get a laugh whenever I want. Uh, but I want to make a point. I want you to understand me in a more fundamental way. I want to move your heart. You know, I want to stay in your mind. So that understanding. And the other thing that people struggle with is just what to tell. I mean, so often people think they can only tell their success stories. Like, mm -hmm. I was an amazing person. I did an amazing thing. Everything turned out amazing. It turns out no one actually wants to spend time with those human beings. And yeah. they don't understand that. They really believe those are the stories I should tell to get people to like me. Or they are stuck in a place where they feel the need to be self-aggrandizing. Yes. I mean, it could come from it could come from both places. Right. They think that that is a sign of strength when really the truth is the strongest people, the most confident people in the world are the ones who speak less of themselves, who choose yeah. their humiliations and their embarrassments and their failures and share those stories rather than, you know, their moments of amazingness or the, or the attempt to like make something bigger than what it really was. So people who are trying to learn how to be storytellers, small s, I have often attributed that to them being naturally introverted or extroverted. But after I read the book, I don't know that I think that anymore. Yeah, no. I the, Most of the storytellers who I know who are the best, the ones that really are performers and extraordinary, they're introverts. So many of them are highly effective on stage and highly ineffective one-on-one. -on -one. And they sort of know it, you know. They're not great dinner companions, but you want to hear them on a stage all the time. The further they get away from human beings, the better they are, the more comfortable they are. Uh, but it's not a matter of extrovert or introvert. It really is... I think fundamentally just understanding how stories work, understanding how to craft a story, whether it's going to be for one minute or five minutes. And then you get to the point where you don't really have to be thinking about it. You're not thinking about the craft. Right. It just becomes automatic. But they cannot – even these great storytellers are not necessarily effective in – transferring that to a dinner party? No. Uh, I mean, a lot of them that I know aren't. They're just... It's fascinating. I know they're nervous. I think that the same thing happens with actors and um, people yeah. like that as well. I think a lot of those people are very comfortable in front of the camera and very uncomfortable, you know, in one-on-one -on -one or small group situations. I think that's a challenge for them for whatever reason. And I think that's what an introvert is. An introvert doesn't has a hard time interacting with people, you know, in that way. But put them on a stage and create that distance... It's actually safer for them.
You know, they don't have to like make eye contact. They don't have to figure out whether you're nodding appreciatively or you're nodding because you're falling asleep, those kinds of things. The other way in which I thought about this, I often have people that are sent to me or come to me and they say, oh, you know, everybody says I need to see you. My story's amazing. And, you know, I try to discourage them from sending me their manuscript and encourage them to start writing. But a lot of times... It's not having the great story that makes them great storytellers. Right. Uh, You you don't need to have a bear attack you. You don't need to spend time in jail. You don't need to be involved in a plane crash to have a great story. The best – the stories that I love to tell the most are the stories about tiny – Yeah. I love those stories. I like those because those are easy to connect to people with. If I tell a tiny little story, it's much more likely that you've experienced something similar. Mm -hmm. If I tell the story of a plane crash – it is unlikely that you have survived a plane crash. So it's going to be harder for me to connect with you. How did you get inspired to even start being interested in storytelling? I had friends who told me I should go to the Moth in New York and compete because, in their words, I've had the worst life of anyone they knew. Yeah, I want to come back to that worst <laughs> life stuff. but So I sort of told them, OK, I'm going to do it. More bluster, honestly, than than planning to do it. I I kept telling them I was going to do it someday, praying they would forget so I wouldn't actually have to do it. Mm. And so when we went finally in July of 2011, not that long ago. Not that long ago. No. uh, You know, I went with the plan that I was going to tell one story at one moth, slam, and then never do it again. And Just check that box. Check that box. Really get them off my back. Mm. And when we got there, you put your name in the hat. There's 20 names in the hat but only 10 spots to tell stories. So as soon as I put my name in the hat, I thought, oh, don't pick me. If you don't pick me, I can go home and say I tried and that might be enough. And we got through nine names and mine was the 10th name chosen. I couldn't believe it. I was so upset. I'd, it was not something I wanted to do until I began speaking into the microphone. And then – the moment I started speaking into it, I knew I had found a place that I liked being in. I've always been a person who, uh, in the words of one of my friends, I live out loud. Mm-hmm. I say everything. Like no matter what has happened to me or what <laughs> stupidity I've engaged in, I've yeah. always been more than willing to share it. I discovered early on that I could get the attention of girls by being funny. And yeah. I discovered that the way you'd be funny or one of the ways to be funny is to just talk about the stupidity of your existence, to – to do something really dumb, not intentionally, but yeah. like f- do something dumb, come home and tell everyone the dumb thing you did. And it made people laugh and it made girls laugh. And I knew if I make girls laugh, I might not be as good looking as Lenny. <laughs> but if I get them to laugh long enough, they'll actually start looking at me instead of Lenny. Yeah. And so I think part of it was just that idea that I'm going to share everything about myself and I'm not going to be ashamed of anything. And what was the first story you told? It was a story about pole vaulting in high school. Uh, It essentially – it was about me rooting against my teammate because even though it might cost the track meet or our track team the meet, we would lose the meet. It's the idea that sometimes in organized sports, you want to be the best person on your team even if that means your team is going to lose as a result. So I was rooting against Jack. I didn't want him to have a successful vault because if he failed, I would be better than Jack and in everyone's eyes, I would be more reliable than Jack was. So it's that admission that I'm a terrible human being who roots against his own teammates in an effort to look better himself. And and you placed that night, if I remember. Like, yeah, I won the slam. You won it. I did. So then after that, you immediately realized this is something you have to keep doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I thrive on competition, too. So that helped a lot. It was a good combination. Yes, it was very good. But yeah, I loved being up there. I loved 
um, I loved crafting stories, honestly. I mean, I, I was writing novels already. And so I liked the way that when you tell a true story, it's sort of like a puzzle. Like all the material is already presented in front of me and I have to figure out what to include and yeah. what order to include it. When I'm writing a novel, which I love doing, I don't know what the end of the story ever is. I start at the beginning with a question or a premise, and I just pick my way to the end, and anything could happen, and I have the world at my fingertips. But when I tell a personal story, I have to find the ending first. I have to know what I want to say, where, I, where I'm going to land this plane. And then the puzzle pieces are lying out in front of me, and I have to figure out the best way to put that puzzle together. So now, if I recall in reading the book, there were two times it wasn't so easy for you to deliver the kind of the quality and the impact of the stories that you were used to. Tell us about those. So you're talking about the robbery and the... um, Yeah. Yeah. So twice in my life, I've told stories that I wasn't prepared to tell. Uh, So when I was 22, I was the victim of an armed robbery. And it was terrible. It was um, gun to the head, triggers pulled to try to get me to open a safe, and 15 years of post-traumatic stress disorder until I went and saw someone. And so I planned on telling that story on stage one night. And I thought I would be fine because I had been to a therapist. And just being able to say a gun was put to my head and the trigger was pulled is an enormous accomplishment for me. It took forever to say those words out loud. So I figured I'll be able to do it. And when I took the stage, I started talking, and I have no recollection of ever being on that stage. I remember standing in front of the microphone and then my memory is a perfect black hole. And then I remember sitting down next to my wife, Alicia, and she said, what just happened? And I said, I have no idea what just happened. Mm. Now, the story came out. I actually, I, I placed first or second that night, but it wasn't the story I planned Even on telling. Even you bad is good. <laughs> well, there was emotion and vulnerability in there. Yeah. But I got really angry at one point uh, at the people who did that terrible thing to me and that anger came out, I guess. In, in while you were presenting. Yeah, because the sound guy was a friend of mine and he said, uh, at the end of the night, he said, boy, when you kept repeating, I'm glad they're dead, I'm glad they're dead, I'm glad they're dead over and over again, I was a little worried for you. And I thought like you should have been because I... And you didn't even remember I it. was not present for it. No, not mentally. And then I asked my therapist, you know, a few days later, what happened? And he said, you went and stood in front of a thousand people and thought you'd be okay to tell that story that you've only told to your wife and me in like a safe setting. Mm -hmm. So he taught me how to prepare to tell those stories. So so then a year later, I went and I told that story at an even larger venue. But that time I was prepared to do it and I was able to do it effectively. But sometimes, sometimes you're just not ready to tell a story. You're either you haven't put yourself in the right place, or even worse, it's a phrase I've learned from uh, the director of The Moth, who I think learned it from an, an author, which is we tell stories from our scars and not our wounds. So sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, mm. "I have a story to tell," and I'll hear it and I'll say, you're, "You can't tell that story not yet. yet, right? You're not ready, or you're in the midst of the story." I tell people that all the time, like. I'm getting divorced from my husband. I want to tell the story. And I say, well, where are you right now? And she says, it's going to be finalized in three weeks. And I said, you Not need to cooked. come, yeah, you need to come back in a year. Um, it, there's actually – someone told me once that it, when it comes to storytelling, you should wait about a year before um, – after someone's passed away to try to tell that story. But you, you should wait about three years after a divorce because we all expect people to die. You know, eventually we're all going to die and that's an expectation. But you never really get hmm. married with the expectation that you're going to get divorced. And when someone dies, they don't continue to make your life difficult. But when you divorce someone, quite often they're still around and they're still creating problems in your life. So that's a harder story, oddly, to tell because of that. You know, I was just when – I, when I was reading the book, one of the things that I thought about – so with this talk I'm giving about summer reading uh, that I do a couple of times, I thought I'm going to include 
this book because the other part of storytelling that occurred to me when I was reading this book is creating an opportunity for people to be heard. Yeah. And I run into a lot of people who feel they're not heard. Right. I agree completely. Yeah. Especially underserved people and, you know, the less fortunate you are, the less likely someone is listening to you. Exactly. And sadly, those are the people who have the best stories. You know, I can find stories in anyone's life. But if you tell me I have a refugee, done. I've got st- they've got stories. You know, it's harder for me to find a story from, you know, the, the CEO of Lego. The, he's going to have stories. Absolutely. Yes. But he'll want to tell you the <laughs> PR story. Right. It's going to be a, a tougher dig for him. But when I, when I find underserved people, when I find um, minorities um, – in any community, in any regard, those are often people who have tremendous stories. No, I completely agree. This is skipping around a little bit, but one of the things, I think it was on page 80, that I was really struck by, Matthew. So I know you've had a tough life, um, and that's why people encourage you to get started, and we'll come back to that. But this was the this was the paragraph that surprised me a little bit. So the I'll read the piece. Despite an excellent GPA and a list of extracurricular activities that included champion pole vaulter, middling bassoonist, op-ed writer for the school newspaper, founder of the short-lived chess club, no parent, teacher, or guidance counselor ever spoke the word college to me. While my friends were being called out of class to discuss SAT scores, safety schools, and financial aid, I sat quietly at my desk and waited for my return. It never came. I'll never understand why. As a result, I came to believe the college was not meant for me. Right. So this is a a concern in low-income schools, et cetera. So I'm curious on two levels, Matthew. One is, why don't you – you really – this is inexplicable to me that you had a class full of kids. You, uh, it would be hard for me to imagine you weren't smart. Why wouldn't they have been talking to you about it? I honestly have no idea. I mean, it makes my wife especially crazy. I know my parents weren't talking to me about it because they were just ineffective as parents. I had a terrible stepfather and a mother who my mother, my mother, I had, I had a terrible, I had, (laughs) my stepfather makes me so mad. I had a terrible stepfather and I had a mother who my wife later made me understand was depressed most of her life. Mm. Uh, and I had never that had never occurred to me until Alicia said that to me one day. She Interesting. Said, she was depressed, and I thought, "Oh my God, she was depressed." So it didn't surprise me in that regard. I don't know why teachers and guidance counselors didn't do more for me. I mean, I know what I understood at the time, which was we are poor. I guess poor kids don't go to college, and I just accepted that. You know, one of the things I do for my students now as a teacher is every year I take them to a community college, the same one I went to. And I make them understand that everybody gets to go here, regardless of how much money you have. And if you do well here, like I did, then you can get a free ride to almost any university in the world. I, you know, I, I had a I had a scholarship opportunity to go to Yale if I had wanted to, free. And I let them know that. And all I did was come here and work hard. That's the only thing I did. I want kids to know that because I know already at ten some of my students don't believe college is a possibility for them, and that kills me. And do you think? That is totally because their parents are 
for any number of reasons, not in a position to inspire them to do that? Or do you think it's a conspiracy between an inadvertent conspiracy between the parents and the school systems? No, I think it's I think it's the former. I think it's if you've never been to college and you've never even walked on a college campus, it is really hard to talk to your child about going to college. I mean, I don't even think many parents in these situations understand how college works, how you pay for college. Right, right. I, I think that it is beyond their capacity. And I think in many cases, these parents are working two and three jobs and they are not thinking to the future. They're thinking about how the heat's going to get turned off next week if I don't find a way to make a little more money. So I think that is really what's happening. If you don't know someone in your life who has gone off to college and they can't come back and talk to you about it, it becomes an impossibility in your mind, mm-hmm. something that is just not meant for you. Like we don't go to college. We do other things. And I think that's what happens. You know, there was a very interesting article in the New York Times Magazine a number of years ago about a program that was implemented at UT, University of Texas, Austin, that figured out a way to take first-gen college kids and put them in the same classes, not not watered-down calculus or watered-down physics. But what they did is they had all incoming freshmen take an online thing before they started that created the image of their success at school. Because to your point, they didn't get that at home. There was nobody who was able to. And they have done something like double the graduation rate of these first-generation kids to go to college. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what got you to go to college? What, What happened in here? Well, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. Mm. Uh, uh, You know, that's another thing. When I was in high school, if you would ask me as a high school senior what jobs exist, I don't think I could have named more than 10 jobs. That's sort of like Mm -hmm. that is emblematic of how limiting your scope of knowledge can become if someone's not opening doors for you. So I had always wanted to be a teacher. I think I like kids a lot. I think it also was a safe place for me. I think my home was a difficult place for me, and school was always a place where I felt safe. So wanting to be a teacher made sense to me. Then you could be there all the time. Right. Uh, I worked for McDonald's for years. That was I got kicked out of my house when I was 18. I became a manager of a McDonald's. And I sort of transformed my dream for a while into I will become a person who trains people at McDonald's to do things. And that will be my version of teaching, which was always a sad and depressing version of it. But I was trying to get as close as I could to it. And then it wasn't until uh, a lot of rotten things happened to me that I realized, like, I need to stop wasting time. I need to go do something. And and then I discovered what a community college was, which also I had no idea until someone said, there's this thing called a community college. I went and took some classes there. Maybe you could. Do you remember who that was? Yeah. It was my best friend, um, Benji. Benji. Yeah. Benji said, there's a community college. And, you know, why don't you try that? And I said, what's a community college? He had already been to – he had already graduated from Bryant University. He had a good job. And, you know, it's just – I think it's really hard to understand the closed doors in people's minds yeah. unless uh, you've experienced it. And it's not because you don't want the doors open. It's like you don't even understand there's a door to you be open. You don't opened. know. You don't know. Right. You, the, that's why I love the idea of bringing storytelling to people who wouldn't imagine they have stories – to be heard. Yeah, I do a lot of work now with uh, like clergy members who are learning that if you stand in front of your congregation and you tell a personal story, they are more likely to listen to you and believe what you have to say. Yeah. Or um, I'm working with Yale New Haven Hospital teaching patients and caregivers to tell the story of their experience 
to doctors and nurses who don't have that same perspective. So if you hear a patient talk about their experience going through an illness in the hospital and some of the challenges they encountered, I've watched nurses and doctors cry because they had no idea that what they were doing was causing discomfort and pain for a patient unintentionally. Because, again, that's a person who doesn't feel like they have a story. They feel like, I don't want to just complain because they did save my life. But, like, that's a low bar. Like, you should at least expect a level of comfort and empathy that doctors and nurses want to give but sometimes don't understand that they're not. And medical schools seem like they're tiptoeing towards understanding the importance of this. But I don't think historically it's been any element of their curriculum. Right. I agree. Although I get a lot of work in the medical field now. So I have hospitals and sort of um, Cambridge Health Alliance was a place I was working recently helping doctors understand this. Uh, There's a lot of work that's being done, at least by me, in the medical um, field to help communication and help build understanding. So I'm seeing a big transition. Matthew and I have been friends for a long time. Matthew has been on uh, Just the Right Book before. But every time I'm in a conversation with you, I can't help but wonder how you organize your time. You've got two kids. You're married. You teach full time. Yes. Right? Um, You do the moth. You do storytelling. You have a new podcast. You have an old podcast. You're on this show. You wrote this book. How do you – I mean the thing that – how do you organize your time so you can get all this done? Well, I know people must ask you this all the time. Yes. I'm actually writing a book about this. You it's are? My, and it's my next nonfiction book. Um, I can't wait. It's, I think it'll be good. Uh, I do consulting on this topic, so I am taking my consulting and putting it into a book. One of the things, it's just an advantage I have, and it's an unfortunate advantage. We talked about the robbery. You know, my head was pressed down onto a greasy tile floor, and a gun was put to my head. And a man told me he was going to pull a trigger and kill me. And I believed it. I believed I was in the last seconds of my Mm -hmm. life. And, you know, I say in a lot of ways I've never gotten off that floor. I understand the razor-thin line that I stand on and how easy it is to be gone. gone. And I truly, there isn't a day and probably, if I'm really being honest, there isn't an hour that doesn't go by that I don't think about that. And so that motivation causes me to be highly efficient with my time, at least to have the desire to be highly efficient. Because when I work with people, so many people want to be more efficient and productive. And yet when I give them strategies, they don't actually want to adopt the strategies that will make them more efficient and productive. They want the results, but they don't want the process. And I think they don't want the process because they don't have the understanding that I have, which is you could be dead tomorrow. You could be dead in an hour. And so, I mean, there's lots of answers to the question you asked me, but what I primarily do is I just make sure that every hour of my day is spent doing things that I absolutely want to do, and that is time with my children, time with my family, writing books, teaching children, and I cut everything else out. So although I love television, I truly love it, I watch almost none of it, Mm -hmm. because I know when I'm 100, I will not look back on my life and think... I I wish I had watched more Law and Order. What was I thinking, right? I'm only going to think the opposite. Why did I spend time watching television at all, right? Yeah. I'm not going to want to do that. And in the morning, I have routines that are like I know like insanely established in the minds of my wife probably, which is I get up 
And partially because I worked at McDonald's, I've trained myself to find the quickest way to accomplish all of my tasks. We were watching the um, Ray Kroc movie recently, my wife and I. The founder of McDonald's. Yeah. And there was a scene in it where he's trying to organize the kitchen in such a way. It's almost like a dance to produce as many cheeseburgers as possible in a single minute. And it's this really complex sort of Rube Goldberg designed process. And she pauses it. My wife, and she looks at me and she goes, is this why you are who you are? (laughs) And I thought, like, yeah, that might be part of it, actually, because I just aggressively try to find the shortest way to do something. And then I stick with that for the rest of my life. And if you do that enough, and I don't think people believe it, but if you do it enough, if you can shorten your shower by two minutes every day, and if you can get dressed 30 seconds quicker than everybody else, and if you can eat one meal standing up and doing something else... You know, like I have a policy. If I'm not eating with another human being, the meal should last less than 10 minutes and I should probably be standing up while I'm eating it. Now, if you and I are going to have dinner, let's sit down for three hours and really enjoy ourselves. Yeah. But if it's lunchtime, I'm, it's going to be 10 minutes and I'm going to be standing up and doing something else because I don't have time to sit at my desk and eat a burrito and do nothing. Like when I'm 100, I'm going to think, God, I used to sit for half an hour and eat a burrito and look at the Internet. And now I'm on my deathbed, all the things I could have accomplished. And so that thought process and that desire to cut down all of the minutiae to the tiniest slivers possible, that is what I try to do. Okay. So I have three questions that I'm prompted to ask from that. One is when my son Edward was two, I was worried I wasn't spending enough time with him. I was still doing work in New York. I had just opened the bookstore. So I had read this book called The Overachiever's Handbook. And I think it was by a woman named Osborne. I'm not even sure. But one of the things that she said to do is take a grid of like the 20 or 25 things that you think you do and do a chart. There's 168 hours in a week. That's all. Right. 168 hours. And you keep track of everything. So you keep track of how long are you in the shower and how long did you take to eat and how long are you driving. So one of the things I discovered was I was having plenty of time with Edward. I was having almost no alone time with Kev. (laughs) So we started date night. But it did – it was the beginning for me of thinking about are you spending your time the way you want? But here's the other side. Matthew, that I wonder about is by operating that way, do you eliminate the opportunity for serendipity by everything being structured? Is there a downside to that? Well, I don't think there is because when I talk about the structure, I'm getting through the things, you know, I'm creating structure around those things that sort of occupy our time needlessly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I play a lot of golf, for example. Okay, I feel better. Right. I play a lot. On Sunday, I hit a bird and killed it with a ball mid-flight, right? That was serendipity. Unfortunate for the bird and me. Not not good serendipity. Right. But why am I able to do that? Because I can afford myself that time because I've eliminated the other things that occupy other people's time. So, you know, quite often if you really know me well, you know that my life is oddly filled with Enormous amounts of productivity in terms of teaching and writing and speaking. But it's also filled with like yesterday, four hours on the beach with my children, with my son on my back, dragging him through the water, you know, because I had eliminated all the nonsense that interfered with my time. And I just try to be as productive as possible when I on those things that I have to get taken care of. Like sleep is a good example. People screw up sleep all the time. They spend 
they think about I slept eight hours and they say, no, you didn't. You woke up at seven and you turned on the stupid television and you laid in bed for an hour, which was a wasted hour. Because, yeah. you know, my policy is if you're in bed, you're sleeping and you should take sleep seriously, which is like if you're not using white noise, then you're crazy because all the science says white noise will allow you to get to a deeper sleep quicker and decrease the number of times you wake up in the middle of the night or leave REM Well, sleep. I'm going to try that. Yeah, white noise is essential. Like, you should get yourself to the point, and my wife can attest to this, when I lie down in bed, 30 seconds later, I am fast asleep. You must be related to Kevin Cody. No. There's strategies you can do. I (laughs) promise you, you can become a more efficient sleeper. And so even though I only sleep five or six hours a night, my wife will tell you, he is asleep for all five hours he's in bed. Whereas a lot of people say, well, I need eight hours. But what they really are saying is I need to lie in my bed for 30 minutes and watch The Late Show. And then I'm going to lie in my bed for another 30 minutes and think about stuff. And then I'm eventually going to drift off into non-productive, non-REM sleep for a long time, eventually get some REM sleep, and then wake up in the morning, turn on the Today Show, and spend another 30 minutes lying in bed watching that. And I said, well, can you imagine the amount of time you lost? And if you had just taken sleep seriously and really examined the science of it and found the way to be the most efficient sleeper possible, you'd have all that extra time. Well, you know, I started using a Fitbit about a month ago. Yeah. And so I, it registers your sleep. And so I've been trying to figure out like what not to eat before, whatever. But I've been fascinated because it gives you the total time you were in bed. Right. And the amount of time you were asleep. Right. And I have actually worked to expand the percentage of time that I am asleep when I am in bed. Right. That's exactly what you should be doing. Yes, because I am confident. I am here to tell you I am asleep 99% of the time that I am lying in bed. There's That's no hilarious. That's hilarious. You should get there, though. Everyone can get there. People tell me they can't. But then I say, what strategy have, have you tried? They say none. And I say, that, then why are you even talking to me? So, Matt, what is the – to go back that you said that a lot of times when you give people the hints of how to be more efficient, that's not really what they want to do. What's their obstacle? They don't want to change. Change is hard. Mm-hmm. They fall into this rut. You know, they can't imagine not – sitting on the couch from 8 to 11 every night watching their favorite shows or, uh, you know, even people who are really close to me like my wife, you know, I I say to her things like, I hope she doesn't listen to this. I say things to her like, the car gets messy when the children are in the car. But if you spend 30 seconds every time you get out of the car and you just make sure everything's cleaned up and you spend 30 seconds with the kids, the car will never be messy. Your alternative is, Every two weeks, you can spend half an hour cleaning out your car. Which do you choose to do? Yeah. You know, I also do this crazy thing. It's not crazy. I time chores. So I know that it takes four minutes to empty a dishwasher. So why would you ever leave a dishwasher filled with dirty dishes and start piling things in the sink for the sake of four minutes? But people do it all the time because Mm. in their mind, emptying the dishwasher is a big task when if you actually do it well – It will take everyone in the world about four minutes to do it. So empty the stupid dishwasher and don't allow problems to become bigger problems. I'm going to time that. Yeah. Start timing your tasks, really. Time how long you take to take a shower, how long it takes to empty a hamper and put your clothes away. I'm already a little nutty, Matthew. Get a little more nutty. Get a little more nutty. The nutty people live the more like – prosperous lives like my life is full you know someone recently sometimes mine's a little too well that's better someone asked me recently when was the last time you were bored how could anybody be bored people are bored ever people are bored all the time how how could that be because they're spending a lot of time sitting around and not achieving their goals truly 
You know, Matthew, that is a thing. You know, when you've raised a child, right, you think about, like, what messages have I sent and, you know, and not always the ones that you thought or, you know, you actually wish you were a different person so your kid, all these things go into it. But one of the moments I had not that long ago, Edward was home and he w- something came up about boredom. And he said, you know, it's just shocking to me that anyone could ever say that they're bored when there is so much to do and learn and read. And I thought, yes. Yes, that's wonderful. <laughs> if I got one little thing through, yeah. I mean, I could list the other annoying things about him. But it was – so why – I just don't get how people can be bored. I, I agree. Uh, you know, another thing is it, storytelling comes into this. People are often – Yeah, we'll a, come back to the yeah, book. No. It's just too much fun to no, talk I, to you about this everything. This is good. <laughs> um, people are unwilling to do the hard thing. You know, storytelling for me was a hard thing. I didn't want to do it but thought it would be, you know, an experience. And so I went and I did it. And I'm grateful for it. It's made my life full and complete in a way that it wasn't before. People often think about things they want to do in life. I was speaking to a person this morning who said, I want to write a book someday, but it just seems so overwhelming. I don't know where to start. And I said, well, write one sentence. Exactly. You know. And then she told me, well, I, I'm overwhelmed by the computer. I like to write only in a notebook. And I said, well, there were men writing novels in the trenches during World War I while wearing gas masks and being shot at. So I really don't want to hear that you have a problem with the computer screen and that it's overwhelming to you. Just write a sentence and then write another sentence and yeah. keep doing that. Like. But for so many people, these these things are really challenging yeah. They because it's hard. You know? I call it put one foot in front of the other. Right. But the, I don't know. But that first step is scary for people. I'm doing stand-up mm-hmm. now. That This year, the hard thing I'm doing is stand-up comedy, which is terrifying. And there's a strong part of me that doesn't want to do it at all, but I know that it's the hard, scary thing. And I always choose to do the hard, scary thing. Because it always ends up on the other side somehow better. Yeah. And I think most people are, choose complacency and conformity and the thing they were doing yesterday. Whereas for me, I never want to be doing just the thing I was doing yesterday. I want to be changing my life in some new and interesting way. Like my wife. She took up the ukulele this year. And she just started playing. Yeah, she started playing in February. And I just had my launch event for Storyworthy. Yeah. And I said at the launch event, I want you to sit on stage in front of 250 people people, and And play play publicly and sing publicly for the first time in your life. Because I wanted the people to understand that it's important to do the hard and the terrifying thing. And she was terrified. And it was really hard. And she did it. It's going to be on our podcast, actually, next week, that recording. It was beautiful. People, everyone rose to their feet. They never Mm -hmm. rose to their feet for me that night, no matter how many stories I told. But that moment was so powerful for people because she did the hard, scary thing. And she chose to take on something new so that her life has this new aspect to it. And next year, she'll do it again. She'll take on something else new. And sort of that is what people are afraid to do. That's why people won't change because that's always scary. It's always hard. Complacency is easier. And they could fail. Yeah. Well, you you have to fail. I mean... She wasn't perfect. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear she has to restart, a, you know, one section again, and she giggles at one section. It's not perfect. So, what's the new podcast? Uh, it's Speak Up Storytelling. We've been uh, producing shows for five years now in the Hartford area, and we record all our shows. So, I have a catalog of stories that's hundreds deep. And what's the show? Describe that first. So, it's me plus four or five other storytellers. We take the stage on a given evening, and we each tell a personal story from our lives. 
uh, based upon a theme that we chose. And my wife hosts all the shows, which was another really hard and terrifying thing that she had to do. And so we've been recording all those stories from all those storytellers. And on our podcast, what we do is we play one of those stories from our catalog. And then Alicia and I talk about the story. We talk about what's working well in that story, like what the storyteller did that was effective. And then we talk about ways the story could have been improved. So it's the goal is to be entertaining. You're going to hear a good story. And then you're going to hear some instruction based upon that story. And I also do a homework for life section where each week I take one item from my homework for life. And I talk about how this tiny little thing could be spun into something that might be a one-minute story to a six-minute story. Because so many people just say, I don't know how I can turn my life my life events, these little moments into stories. So each week I show you how to do one of those. And then we answer questions and things like that. It's great. It's a lot I'm of fun. I'm going to listen to this podcast. It's a lot of fun. So it's called? Speak Up Storytelling. And it's I could find it on iTunes. Wherever so. you can get your podcasts is where you can find it. Yes. All right. Yeah. All right. So I have a couple more questions before. We, well, we're almost out of time. We're actually literally out of time. We could talk forever, Roxanne. I know. It's true. <laughs> It's it, Matthew. Every time we're together, I mean, I just feel like it's this freewheeling conversation that I just learned so much from. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure your producers love editing these things. They do. They're good at it too. Thank goodness they're good at it. So you talk about the five second moment. Yes. Describe that for us. So most people, when they think about storytelling, they think of it as a series of events that happened in their life, and that's not. A story. That's terrible. The classic example is, let me tell you about my vacation, which no one's ever wanted to hear the next sentence of that story, right? If you, if someone says, let me tell you about my vacation, they're really saying, I'd like to relive my vacation at your expense by running through the itinerary. It's never good. Right. It's terrible. So stories aren't about stuff that happened to us. Stories are about moments of realization or transformation. I either changed in some small or enormous way, or I realize something about myself, the world, someone else in the world. Mm -hmm. It's the moment I walk into a pet store and my realization is it's been three months and I'm just as devastated as I was three months ago. Right. Right. That's a moment of realization. So we're looking for moments. I call them five-second moments because I do believe they happen over the course of five seconds or less, which is I walk into the pet store and within one moment, within one second, I suddenly understand something about my grief that I didn't understand a moment before. Right. And so we're looking for that. We're looking for change or realization. And we find those moments. That's the story we're supposed to be telling about. We're not supposed to tell about the this and then this and then this and then this. We're supposed to be telling a story where I want you to understand when I walked into a pet store, I suddenly understood my grief. And the purpose of the story is is to to, get to that. Exactly. And to bring that moment to the greatest clarity possible. So in the perfect world, you will actually experience some version of the emotion that I experienced in that moment as well. That's why if I tell you that story really well and I talk about me crying in the pet store, you will become weepy in the perfect version of that story too. You'll weep for me, but you'll also weep because somewhere inside you... Is another version of that. Exactly. You're carrying grief as well. And I'm going to open up that grief, unfortunately for you, but fortunately because then we're going to get closer together, right? Like I just did a workshop and a woman... I told a story which was a terrible decision on my part. The, the, the story was about me making a terrible decision. And at the end, she said, well, what's the lesson there? You just told us about a bad decision you made. And I said, well, first, stories don't have to have lessons. They just have to be engaging, entertaining, and connective. I said, but can't the message just be, we're not all alone. We all make terrible decisions, and we're mm. all the same. And she started to cry because she, she understood, I'm not alone. 
Like that man made a terrible decision and I make terrible decisions. Yeah, I loved I loved uh, the story that you uh, told in the book about uh, driving, getting a flat tire, ending up right. yep. somewhere and it, it's it's worth the price of the book. Oh, thank you. Matthew, thank to you. read that story and the moment you get to there also is about what does loneliness actually feel or look like? And, you know, at one point you felt like you were the loneliest and then you discovered – I wasn't we even close. You, were, you weren't even close. Right. The, the, other, the other advice that you have uh, in the book, tell us the example of anchoring something geographically and I think you use your grandmother – or a grandmother. Oh, yeah. My grandmother, Odalie Dix. Yeah. I was going to say Onida. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the idea that the difference between storytelling and talking is that if we're storytelling, we're creating a movie in the mind of our audience. And in order to create that movie, there needs to be a physical location at all times. You're never watching a movie and there's a character not in a physical location. And yet in storytelling, we hear it all the time. People will stop a story and say, well, before we move on the story, let me tell you a little bit about my grandmother. Right. No one's ever wanted to hear that next sentence either. Right. Right. Because really what they're saying is I'm now going to present an essay on my grandmother. It's not storytelling anymore because I can't see her. So in the book, I think the example I use is I'm getting ready to tell this story actually for the first time. It's about my grandmother. When she was when I was young, I lived next door to her and she used to pull my teeth and it was horrible. She would she would tie a string around it, pull our faces close together and she would look at me and she'd say, Look into my eye. Don't blink. And then she'd rip my tooth out. She was really like a, a really horrible person. Uh, and it's a story about when she dies, I'm kind of happy about it and no one else is and I can't figure out why. It turns out later I learned that everyone to some degree was a little happy that grandma was gone. I just didn't pick up on that at the age of seven. But I can start the story by saying, let me tell you something about my grandmother, right? Her name was Odely Dix, which probably explains a lot about why she was who she was. She wore black every day of her life. And she used to pull my teeth like a sadist, right? I could start it that way. But instead, I would start it this way. I'm seven years old, and I'm standing on the edge of a vegetable garden looking out at my grandmother. She's bent over and pulling weeds. My grandmother's name is Odalie Dix, which probably explains a lot about why she was who she was. She wore black every day of her life, and she pulled my teeth as a sadist. All I did was before Turn I Turn it around. Yeah. Before I gave you the same information— I gave you a picture in your mind. You saw me at the edge of a garden, right? And it doesn't matter what the garden was, so I let you put your own garden in, which means suddenly the landscape is familiar for you. For her garden, it was an enormous vegetable garden, but if you put her in a little flower garden, that's fine for me. And then you do all these things you don't even realize you're doing, like you pick the season, right? So you chose whether it was going to be summer, fall, winter, or spring. You chose the weather that day. You probably made it sunny with puffy white clouds, but I'm not sure. You put me in the story and you put clothing on me. You imagined me on the edge of the garden. You even put in like a horizon, right, in the background. You did all that work for me. And all I did was say, I'm seven years old and standing on the edge of a garden. But so often people start their stories with a litany of description and they're just talking. They're not like creating that movie that people want to see in their minds. And the best storytelling, you kind of forget about where you are. It happens in the movies all the time, right? You're watching a movie and suddenly like you're terrified for the people on screen. 
when objectively you know, like, those dinosaurs in Jurassic Park don't actually exist. Those two kids aren't actually brother and sister. But you're there. But you're there. And, like, you're sweating it out. Even though you know this is Jurassic Park, kids don't get eaten in Jurassic Park movies. You're still worried about the kids getting eaten. That's great storytelling. That is the way you can forget about where you are. You can forget about who you are sometimes. I think you just – you completely forget everything except the stuff that's put into your mind with a good story. Well, we have barely covered one-tenth – I mean you've got advice for commencement speakers, which I loved. There's lots of practical – Practical advice for if you want to become storyteller, big ass, storyteller, little s. If if you think that you could be better at conversation, it's all here. We've been talking with Matthew Dix, who's a a friend of Just the Right Book and R.J. Julia's and mine. And his new book is called Story Worthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. And I would say it does that. I mean, I, you know, I've known about your storytelling. I was listening and watching The Moth, you know, in its very early years in New York. It's always been clear to me that everyone has a story to be heard. It was never as clear to me that they can be helped to tell that story. Yeah, I really believe that. As an elementary school teacher, I believe in the capacity of all people. And the goal of the book was to take all the strategies and all the techniques I've learned and to break them down into small, repeatable parts. And I've been doing teaching of storytelling for five years now. I've yet to meet a human being who I can't turn into an effective, entertaining, engaging storyteller. So, yeah, I believe you're right. Everyone can do it. Fabulous. Matthew Dix, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Matthew Dix. It's always such a pleasure to have him on our show. We want to hear from you. Email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Tell us what guests you would like to hear from on Just the Right Book, how you like the show, or what you're reading. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. Our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. This is Christina Torres, producer of Just the Right Book podcast, and I'm here to tell you about something fun going on with the show. By purchasing a Just the Right Book podcast tote bag, you can help support production of the podcast, plus a portion of the proceeds will also go to Reading is Fundamental, an incredible charitable organization that encourages literacy for all children. The bags are absolutely adorable. They say live well, love much, read often. And they're perfect for carrying either your day-to-day items, your Trader Joe's groceries, and of course, books. So just go to our website, bookpodcast.com. They're only $15, but you have to act fast. They're only available until July 13th.